praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So good to see some of you who have not seen in a while. We thank God that you're here. I just want to bring, and for those of you who may be here for the first time or one of the few times, it's good to see you. I want to remind you, and I, I say this not in jest, I say this in all seriousness, you're in the right place this morning. And the reason why you're in the right place this morning is because in this place, Jesus Christ is going to be, by His grace, exalted and glorified. I hope to set before you this morning the Lord Jesus Christ and all of His exalted glory. The Lord Jesus Christ who challenges all earthly powers. This is something that we will be confronted with this morning as we look in the passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 2. I'll ask you to turn there. Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking at uh, verses 12 through 17. And what we're going to see in this passage of Scripture is our Lord Jesus Christ coming to this church, this church in Pergamos, uh, this church that was confronted with many challenges, but this church that in some way was able to show itself very faithful in following Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time, a church that was tempted to compromise with the world. It's really something to see as we look at this passage of Scripture because on the one hand, we see an exemplary church, a church that at the very center of what was known at that time as emperor worship, where the power of the state was enthroned, where the power of the state had the power of life and death, where the state, by way of its manifestation in the person of the emperor, had to be obeyed. This little church was faithful, and yet at the same time, kind of in an insidious way, a temptation to compromise with the world system was creeping into the church. And so in a sense, we have in this one church, these two competing ideas. On the one hand, this, this, this wonderful faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, and on the other hand, the temptation to acquiesce to the culture. Well, by God's grace, I want to set this passage of Scripture before you. What we're going to do is we're not going to, we're not going to uh, capture everything that Christ says to this church in uh, one setting. We're going, to, we're going to look at the commendation that Christ gives to the church, and then next week we're going to pick up that challenge that Christ gives to the church and the, and the, uh, and the, uh, and the temptations that it was facing. But again, let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Revelation, the second chapter, Revelation chapter 2, and we will read together verses uh, 12 through 17. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Please hear the word of God. And unto the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works. And where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where in Antipas my faithful martyr was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication." So thou hast them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which, which thing I also hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and will come, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, you come to us this morning in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the pages of Scripture. 
Here we read in your holy word, Father, this word that Jesus Christ has for his church. And how we ask and how we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us grace to navigate this passage of Scripture. But greater grace, Lord God, to navigate the day and age in which you've called us to live. A day and age in which we too must be faithful, yes, even unto death will give us grace. A day too when we must not be seduced by the culture around us will give us grace. A day in which we look forward to, to the promises that you give to all those who overcome this great promise again of having this new name given, this great promise of being given this personal reward by our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, then we pray today to look into this passage and understand truly the will of our Lord Jesus Christ for us in this day, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, once again, this passage of Scripture, this letter that our Lord Jesus Christ writes to this church, this church in Pergamos. It's kind of an interesting thing to see because I said, as I said before, one of the things that really catches our attention as we try to understand what our Lord is saying here is that this church is presented to us in two kind of almost conflicting ways. On the one hand, we have a church that is marked by a way of its faithfulness in the time of uh, persecution. But on the other hand, we have a church that, as I said before, is showing a tendency to give itself over to the kind of the, the moral uh, uh, standards of the culture around, around it. And in that regard, this church has much to say, or what Jesus says to this church has much to say to us in our day. In our day, we're not quite under the threat of an authoritarian or totalitarian state. We're not really right now kind of being forced under the threat or, or pain of death or even imprisonment for our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But we certainly are confronted with, a, with, a, with the temptation to conform to the larger society. And that temptation we're going to pick up next week in particular. And so what I want to do is I want to look, as I said before, at the things that our Lord Jesus Christ mentions by way of the commendable aspects of this church. And how we're going to do this is we're going to, number one, consider how Jesus Christ presents himself to this church. You remember how we said that in every one of these, every one of these letters to the uh, seven churches in, in the book of Revelation, our Lord Jesus Christ presents himself in a, in a fashion which is specific to the needs or to the situation of the church. And in here in this, in this uh, third epistle, or this third uh, letter to the, to the church now, to, to this church at Pergamos, we're going to see that our Lord Jesus Christ presents himself in a way that kind of catches us off guard. Our Lord Jesus Christ presents himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, the sharp sword with two edges. And the first thing I want you to realize about that is that this is a way in which Christ has already declared himself to the church. You remember there in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, our Lord Jesus Christ presents this, is presented in the same way. He says that he is the one that has the sharp two-edged sword that proceeds out of his mouth. What is this sword that our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking of? Well, one of the things I want you to know and understand is that this, this picture of Christ with the sword gives to us a very serious view of Christ. It presents Christ to this particular church in a way that, I have to be careful here, but in a way that is almost threatening. In a way that reminds the church that our Lord Jesus Christ is truly the Lord of the church and that sword represents everything by way of authority. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that the church at Pergamos had to deal with was the authority of the Roman power, the authority of the state to execute, the authority of the state, again, to bring to bear punishment on those who would go counter to the state. 
And there's a very real sense in which our Lord Jesus Christ says to this church of Pergamos, I know that you are under the authority of the state which will take your life, but you must understand, I hold the true sword. I hold the sword of the, that has the sharp two edges. I hold the sword again that exercises ultimate authority. And there is a sense in which Christ's presentation of the church at Pergamos is a reminder and a challenge to them whose authority will you ultimately live by? Will you live by the authority of the state or will you live by the authority of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings? This same question faces us in our day as well. By whose authority will we live? Under whose mandate will we operate? Under whose rules and whose guidance will we conduct ourselves? Who will we look to in times of need? Who will we plead to in times of our, and when we need mercy? Will we look to the state and all of its, and, and everything that it's able to give, or will we look to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now again, it might seem as though this kind of a, a comparison between Christ and the state is somewhat out of date, but, but I would suggest that we look around and consider the day that we live in. Number one, I would suggest this to you. The reality of, of authoritarianism and totalitarianism is very predominant in the world in which we live. We've been very blessed as a nation not to be under that kind of force, but we see a creeping authoritarianism in our day. We see more and more an attempt to, to cause individuals to conform to thought patterns. Many of those thought patterns are contrary to the word of God. And the state holds its authority over us. The, the state can keep us from doing one thing. The state can, can impose fines upon us. The state can even inflict death. But Jesus Christ comes to the church of Pergamos. He comes to this church and he says, oh, by the way, I had the sharp two-edged sword. I'm the one who exercises ultimate authority. So again, what our Lord Jesus Christ is doing to this church in Pergamos is that he is coming to them. He is introducing himself to them in a way that is particular to their situation. Christ does this over and over again, you know. He presents himself to us in a way that is very specific to our needs in a way that is very specific to how he calls us to, to conform more and more to the authority of his word, Christ comes to us and he has the right to do that. Are you convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord of the church? Are you convinced that Jesus Christ, again, is the one who purchased your soul? Are you convinced that in this world no one loves you like Jesus? Are you convinced, again, that when all is said and done, Christ has this ultimate authority not only over the church but over our individual persons? And so, like I said this morning, you're in the right place. Because you're in that place where Jesus Christ is being worshipped. You're in that place where Jesus Christ is being given the honor to his name. You're not in the right place because you happen to be in Nauset Baptist Church. You're in the right place because wherever the word of God is open, and wherever Jesus Christ is exalted, that's the place to be. And may God give us grace to be that place. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, he comes and he presents himself uh, to this church under that fashion. It's a wonderful way to consider Christ, Christ in his full authority. But like I said before, this would have been very much uh, uh, something that, was, uh, that, that would have been aware of. The, the people in Pergamos would have understood uh, very much the, uh, the authority of the state. It's kind of interesting that when we look at this uh, ancient city of Pergamos, one of the things that we see, each of these cities have these distinguishing characteristics about them. Not only did the church, do the churches have distinguishing characteristics, but the cities had distinguishing characteristics as well. Ephesus was a great uh, commercial center. Smyrna as well was a great commercial center. It's kind of interesting when you look back at the history of these cities uh, in Asia Minor there, modern-day Turkey. Uh, Ephesus uh, and both Ephesus and Smyrna had seaports that allowed them to 
to be uh, uh, very important uh, centers of commerce. Every one of these cities uh, had both uh, religious and political uh, kind of uh, symbols and kind of uh, uh, structure of authority that had to be uh, given attention to uh, by the larger uh, by the larger population. But the the city of Pergamus especially was really, in particular, uh, a center of much by way of the emperor worship, much by way of the uh, uh, cultural influence, much by way of uh, uh, the uh, the religious uh, 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 identity of that day, and so Pergamus was this kind of this 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 refined uh, city that had much by way of its influence in uh, the area of Asia Minor at that time. It was the center of the uh, the. The, the, the cult of Caesar, the Roman, the, uh, the, the, the manifestation of what we would call uh, Roman emperor worship. And I want to say for probably for about 250 years prior uh, to the writing of the, uh, of this, uh, of the book of Revelation, uh, Pergamus had that kind of fame. Uh, Pergamus was a, was a very, uh, uh, a very uh, I have to use the word, a very beautiful city. It was sit on a it was set on a hill. This hill was about a thousand feet above sea level. Uh, even though it may, even though it was uh, quite a bit of ways inland, uh, you know, from the sea coast, uh, on the top of that hill, you would still be able to see uh, the Med- uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, on the top of that hill that the city was situated was a temple dedicated to Zeus. And there, and this is uh, one of the reasons why some of the questions when. When our Lord Jesus Christ says this is where Satan's seat was, is it a is it a reference to that religious worship that was given there? There was another uh, Greek god uh, that was uh, worshipped there, uh, the Greek god of medicine, Asclepius. Uh, and this Greek god, his symbol was a was a, was a snake, and and even in many of our medical symbols today, uh, we still have the serpent uh, there uh, as a symbol of, uh, the, the, of of healing. Believe it or not. And so there was much by way of this uh, uh, city, by way of its influence. Another thing that gave uh, great significance to the city was the fact that next to Alexandria, Egypt, this city had the greatest library in antiquity. Uh, In this city, there were over 200,000 handwritten volumes in its library. Um, From this city, Pergamos, uh, we get our, our English word parchment. It's kind of interesting how this uh, happened. Uh, when, the, when, the, when, when, the, uh, when the rulers of Pergamus had kind of enticed uh, the, the librarian from, from Alexandria, Egypt, to come to Pergamus, uh, the ruler of Alexandria, Egypt, refused to give papyrus to, uh, uh, to, to Pergamus. And so what the, what, what the city of Pergamus had to do is it had to come up with another form upon which writing could be made. And they came up with that very important form of writing, a uh, writing instrument. It was, uh, they, they, they discovered vellum, which is from an animal skin. And some of the most significant texts that we have from ancient history are written not on papyrus, which would have been from Egypt, but are rather written on the vellum, which would have been, again, which was kind of originated there in Pergamus. So Pergamus, again, was a very, very influential city. Chief among, which its, chief among its influences was the fact, as I said before, it was the center of emperor worship. And this becomes, again, a very, very important kind of pivot point in how we understand what our Lord Jesus Christ is saying to this church. 
Now, as I said before, our Lord Jesus Christ comes and he presents himself as the one who has the sword with the sharp edges. And it's kind of interesting uh, what we see here by way of the emphasis uh, that is given uh, to uh, this description. We have here that uh, the, the sword is emphasized in this passage of scripture. Here, the, uh, the sword is uh, kind of uh, given emphatic, uh, an emphatic position when we take a look at it, how it's the, the, the words that are used in the original language, it reads something like this. Christ is described as one who's having the sword, the two-edged one, the sharp one. The emphasis is on this sword that Christ has. And we read about the sword of Christ, again, in a number of places in the book of Revelation. Most, most famously, we might say, is in Revelation chapter 19, when our Lord Jesus Christ descends and, and from his mouth proceeds that sharp two-edged sword with which he wins victory. And so, as our Lord Jesus Christ presents himself uh, in this regard to the church at Pergamos, we find Christ with the sword. I have to ask you this question, and I need to be very careful here. And I hope you don't mind me all qualifying what I say when I say that, but I, I do have to be cautious here. How comfortable are you with a Christ, with, with a Jesus, the true Jesus, the true Christ, who shows up to a church with a sword in his hand, a sword of authority, and a sword, if you notice, he says he will use against those who fail to repent. Look what we see here in verse 16. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We're not used to this kind of presentation of Christ to the church, are we? Now, in one sense, I understand that. In one sense, we know Jesus says, again, come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But did you notice he also says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ calls us to this kind of discipleship. Christ calls us to this kind of living where we are in not only by way of word, but also by way of practice. We are very distinct from the larger culture around us. We do that not just to be uh, kind of uh, obstinate or just to be uh, uh, different. We do that in order to be true followers of Christ. We are declaring with our lips and we, are, and we are also declaring by the way that we live that Christ has ultimate authority, yes, in the church, but also in my life and in my soul as well. And so I ask you this question. Are you taken aback somewhat at Christ coming to his church with a sword in his hand? And I want you to see and I want you to understand that he comes not only with a sword in his hand, he also comes again with a knowledge of their situation. And we're going to get to that. And we're going to see how with this knowledge of the situation, Christ expresses great compassion to those who, are, who willingly identify with him, even in the midst of great difficulty. And this becomes significant. So here's this passage of scripture. Here's this presentation of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having this sword, the sword that represents both judgment and authority. It's kind of interesting, again, getting back to the city of Pergamos. That Pergamos was one of the it was one of the few cities. I, I don't believe that Ephesus had this authority. I don't think that Smyrna had this authority. Pergamos was a city that had the authority to use the sword to execute judgment and justice. That usually was reserved for the power of Rome. But because Pergamos was the center kind of a, of Roman authority in that area. Pergamus was given the power of the sword. And again, stop and think how significant that is. Christ is saying to us, 
in a society or a culture that exercises authority over us. Some of it's just and some of it's right. Romans 13, we understand that. But there are certain points or places where government cannot exercise authority. Certain things that belong exclusively to God. And our Lord Jesus Christ reminds us that he is the one who holds ultimately all authority and all power. Well, that's a description of our Lord Jesus Christ. A description, again, that you might not be uh, familiar with. A description that we should know. Every, let me say this. Everything else that we might understand by way of Christ that is true and proper, everything by way of his compassion, everything by way of his tenderness, everything by way of his encouragement, everything by way of his staying with us, everything by way of his calling us back to himself over and over and over again. How many times shall I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven times, yay, seventy times seven. If, if our Lord Jesus Christ says that to Peter, again, how much more is our Lord Jesus Christ willing to express that kind of forgiveness towards us? We understand that. We must embrace that. We must live by that. But if you or I purposely leave off this more, this more austere uh, presentation of Christ, we're not doing justice to Scripture. We must present Christ as he is presented in the Scripture. And it's Christ himself who shows up to this church Amen. with the sharp two-edged sword in his hand. Well, my brothers and sisters, don't lose sight of that. Please do not lose sight of that. But as I said before, Christ shows up not only with his sword in his hand, he also shows up with a knowledge of everything that they are experiencing. He knows their situation. Let's get back to the text here. Look here in verse 16. I'm, I'm sorry, look here back in verses 12 and 13. And unto the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with the two edges. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he's described. He wants this church again to know who holds ultimate authority. Now he goes on to say this, I know thy works where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and, behold, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. We'll stop right there for now. The next thing I want you to see here is our Lord Jesus Christ has an awareness of their situation, an awareness of their circumstances. He knows the, the environment in which they must remain faithful to him. He knows the environment in which they live. He knows the challenges that are attended with it. And it is interesting to see over and over again how our Lord Jesus Christ presents himself here in Revelation by way of this, uh, by way of this description. I know thy works. I know what you're going through. I know your situation. I know the challenge. I know the difficulty of staying faithful. I want you to know that I know these things and I identify with you in these things. Christ is making this abundantly clear. And while it's here in the King James, we have what we see to, to every one of the letters. I know thy works. Again, Jesus Christ knows what you're doing for him. I know thy works. He also says this, I know where thou dwellest. Now, this is kind of interesting because what we're seeing here is this awareness of Christ, uh, of Christ in the situation that the church of Pergamos was in. And the reason why it's significant is because, as I said, as I said before, as Pergamos was a center of kind of all of the, uh, uh, everything that had to do with emperor worship, it had with it great challenges of staying faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ or showing exclusive obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is saying to this church, look, I know the difficulty that you have where you live and the time in which you live of staying faithful to me. I know there are great challenges to that. But I want you to know and understand, I see your faithfulness in this. But this is where we, we get something of the, of, the, of, the, of the difficulty in handling this, this, this church. On the one hand, great faithfulness, but on the other hand, a temptation to allow the culture to seep in. 
And so how does our Lord deal with this church? Again, I know thy works, and I know where thou dwellest. It's interesting here that the word for dwell has this idea of kind of being settled in. And it's, what's interesting is that normally when, the, when our Lord Jesus Christ, when the scripture refers to our living in this world, it usually refers to our living in this world kind of like passing through, that this world is not our settled home. But in this passage of scripture, the word that's being used does have that concept of being settled in there. And the idea may be this, that this church, again, is in a situation that it really can't get away from. Maybe the opportunity to flee was not there. And this is where they found themselves. And this is where they had to be faithful. And our Lord Jesus Christ again says, I know where thou dwellest. But he describes it in a, in a very interesting way. A shocking way in one sense. Notice what he says here. I know where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Well, what is this? What is Satan's seat? Again, this gives to the, to the church of Pergamos, this gives to the city of Pergamos, this kind of description that takes us aback. It's kind of shocking. We know and understand that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, but to have this city described as the place where Satan's, where Satan's seat is, this is, again, surprising to us. And how are we to understand this? What does it mean when our Lord Jesus Christ says, I know, again, where thou dwellest, where Satan's seat is? What is meant by that? Well, as to be expected, uh, there are a number of uh, attempts to interpret this, uh, this, uh, this phrase. Uh, much of it has to do with kind of its connection to the ancient world and to the religious uh, 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 deities that were present uh, uh, by way of worship in the city of Pergamos. As I said before, uh, probably at least four uh, different ancient you know, uh, pagan gods were worshipped there. Uh, again, the, uh, the temple, uh, again, a temple dedicated to Zeus was there. Uh, the temple, again, to, the, to that god of healing was there as well. People would come from all over, again, to be, to be there. And it's also interesting that this, this city of Pergamos had something of a reputation for being a, a city, we can't say medicine in the modern day of the word, but where, where there, were, there, were, there were opportunities uh, for physical healing to be there, not necessarily miraculous, but again, there was an attempt uh, uh, to, uh, to, to provide some kind of medical relief uh, for those who were suffering. And so when it comes to this idea of where Satan's seed is, is there, is there a connection between the snakes that were connected to that god, to that god, uh, to that god Esculapus? Or was it connected to the, the false god Zeus? What was the connection there? Well, again, there, these things are discussed. Another way in which this is looked at and understood is that maybe this was the place where persecution was at its fever pitch. And that's why it's called the place where Satan's seat, uh, where, where Satan's uh, seat is. That because there was such persecution against the church in this particular city, that that's what gave it the designation of Satan's seat. Well, again, that could be because, again, the church was suffering persecution in this place. But another suggestion is this, that in this city of Pergamos, there was, as I said before, in that region of Asia Minor, the place where emperor worship was really established as the ultimate authority. And so by way of whatever kind of religious impact there was, and you have to remember that in the ancient world, religion was not just like the little private domain that you had and then you had a larger life. Religion was involved in every aspect of life. One of the reasons why our Lord Jesus mentions to the church at Smyrna, I know thy poverty. This church was impoverished because of their stand for Christ. And standing for Christ meant in many ways economic hardship. 
It meant economic opportunities would not be open to you. Educational opportunities would not be open to you. I remember uh, me and uh, Liz and I, we watched uh, probably a couple of years ago now an old movie um, uh, that was put out by, uh, I think it was uh, Vision, Vision Video. You could probably still get it. And it was, uh, the title of the movie was Question 7. And this movie was about a, a young uh, East German family that, uh, that centered around a Lutheran pastor and, and his family. Well, this Lutheran pastor had a very uh, young, talented uh, teenager who was, uh, who was a piano player, very, you know, a very uh, accomplished piano player. And uh, he, wanted to, he wanted to extend uh, his, uh, his educational opportunities and to go to one of the better schools, again, to continue with his musical, to develop his musical talents. And one of the things that uh, was necessary in order to go to, to the university was that a, a, a series of questions had to be answered, seven simple questions, and they revolved around the fact who, who was your most influential, who had the most influence by way of impact on your life. And the challenge for this young boy was, was he going to stand up and, and make a claim for Jesus Christ having this great impact in his life, or would he kind of just, just quietly uh, bypass any mention of Jesus Christ? And the idea here is this, this young boy, this young teenage, this young teenager, he knew his future hinged upon whether or not he publicly identified with Christ. And there is a sense in which maybe 30 years ago, we would never think that such a, a conflict would arise. But in our day today, we can easily see how that could happen. What was once true, again, not only in the ancient world, religion dominating everything, but now a philosophy of life that runs counter against the accepted norms, stand out against that, and your opportunities just seem to narrow a little bit. Make a bold stand in society, and you see that not only do your opportunities begin to narrow, but even opposition begins to be experienced. And so the idea that the individual must stand for Christ in a hostile world is not new to us. Neither is it out of date. I believe that in our lifetime we will see more and more of it. And may God give us the grace to remember who ultimately holds the sword of authority. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself. And so again, when it came to this ancient city of Pergamos, emperor worship was the primary religious expression. And there was the, the requirement to show allegiance to Caesar. Now, my understanding is in the church at Smyrna, in the city of Smyrna, this was required only periodically. But in Pergamos, it was required annually. And if you had participated in the ritual that gave to Caesar pride of place, ultimate authority, you were literally, you were literally, literally given a certificate that said that you were good to go. That, that will become significant when Jesus says, to him that overcomes, I will give a white stone, and his name will be in it. You see, the world will give you its passport, but Jesus will give you another passport, let me tell you. Amen. And so we'll take a look at that again, like as I said, next week. But do you see the conflict there? And what our Lord is saying to this, to, to this church, I know that you are staying faithful. And so you see what's happening. Why is Pergamos called the, the, the place where, where Satan's seat is? Because that was the place of imperial power. That was the place where the emperor was worshipped. And I, I'm concerned for our day 
that as we go forward, we live more and more in a day and a situation where government is saying to us what we can and cannot do. It's a great challenge. The past two years with, with everything that surrounded the, uh, the virus, now we understand and we had no, no qualms at all with, with, responsi with responsible action. We understood that. But it would have been wrong for the church or for, or for the state to say to the church, you cannot worship on, on the particular day. This is something, again, that we would have to stand for even at the threat of, of whatever government might do. You see, the question becomes, who will we be obedient to? And so the point I'm trying to make here is this, is that these things are not something that happened far away and a long time ago. You might remember that during the, uh, the pandemic, uh, when the city of New York was, uh, was requiring a vaccine uh, passport. And I'm not saying anything positive, pro or, or negative toward the vaccine. But what I am saying is this. You might remember that the mayor of New York said essentially this, that if you, don't, if you have the vaccination card, you can come and enjoy everything that New York has to offer. If you don't have the vaccination card, well, you can't come. You see, do you see the, the, the creeping? Do you see? Now, again, it's not what the people at Pergamos were dealing with, but it's on the same track. Yeah. And so for these Christians in Pergamos, again, Jesus says, look, I know your situation. I know what you're up against. And as I said before, I'm not making a comment right now about the vaccine one way or another. Uh, but what I am saying is this, we must be aware that this challenge of political power exerting or trying to usurp the authority of Christ is something that we must be aware of. And I, and I call you, my brothers and sisters, I plead with you, stand with Christ, even in this day. Stand with Christ, even at the, whatever cost it might be. And let me say this, you know, Christ is going to mention his faithful martyr, Antipas. Did you notice that? His faithful martyr. His faithful martyr. Not a his faithful martyr. Christ identified with that martyr personally. And what I want you to see and what I want you to understand is this, is that not everyone that Christ calls is called to be a martyr. We understand that. But every one of us are called to be faithful to Christ. And we must not give off faithfulness to Christ. And so this church at Pergamos, again, was dealing with, uh, with this challenge of staying faithful to the ultimate lordship of Christ, even over against the claims of the, uh, of, of the emperor at that time. And so, well, let me just read you, let me just read what one man says along these lines. He said, in Pergamos then, Satan was enthroned. The authority over the minds of its Asian subjects, or the, the, the people of Pergam uh, Pergamos, uh, possessed by the state and arrayed against the church, was mainly concentrated in emperor worship. The history of the church in Pergamon, Pergamos had been determined by its close proximity to the state as the seat of opposition to the authority of Christ. And so again, this is why our Lord Jesus Christ is calling us, again, calling this church, but calling us to be faithful. And the way he does that, again, he says, look, he knows your situation. But did you notice what else he knows here? Look again here in the passage of Scripture. I know thy works, and where thy dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Let's stop here. The next thing I want you to see about this church, and this is what's commendable about the church, the church is in a very challenging situation, in many ways under the threat of, of, of death. But the church stayed faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. The church did not deny the name of Christ. This is a wonderful thing to see. 
And so when the question came, is Caesar Lord or is Christ Lord? This church was able to say, it's not Caesar that is Lord, it is Christ that is Lord. And, and again, it took its stand against even the outward ritual of just showing allegiance to, the, uh, to, to, to Caesar by way of burning incense. Could you stop and think for a moment how many probably what we would call in our day, many, many people of a balanced mind would say something like this. Come on, what, what, what harm is it going to be? Just do your little action to show your allegiance and, and go about your way. And do you remember what I said last week? Rome was very tolerant. Rome was a very tolerant uh, dictatorship, we might say. So long as you just conform to what Rome said, Rome allowed, the, uh, Rome allowed in many cases, uh, a, a autonomous rule so long as there was a subjection to the ultimate authority of, of Caesar. And so you could, have been, you, could have, uh, you could have worshipped any god you wanted to so long as you gave authority to, uh, again, gave ultimate authority uh, to Caesar. You might remember again when we talked about the church at Smyrna last week, one of the things that brought the persecution to the church was the fact that for a while, the church was identified as, as, as primarily a sect within, uh, within Judaism. And so there was, and Judaism was the only religion that was recognized that didn't have to give, it didn't have to refer to Caesar as God. And so, so long as the church was identified within the larger group of, of, of Judaism, there was no problem. But when the church began to proclaim the lordship of Christ, the true Messiah, even their Jewish brethren said, hey, wait a minute. That's not us. That's not who we are. And that's what brought the power of the state on them. And yet the church remained faithful. This is why, and we'll see this next week, this is why these, these attempts to kind of mute the voice and the distinct voice of the church and its faithfulness to Christ is always a challenge for us. If the church would have just subsumed itself under the Jewish identity, we would not have the Christian message in our day. But since the church remained faithful to Christ, you see, and that's what we're still called to today. That's, this is one of the reasons why we just can't be kind of a, a subsumed under the general uh, kind of benevolence that society manifests. There are many things by way of the Christian faith that, that no one would have issues with. If you want to do good to your neighbor, if you want to be benevolent, if you want to do acts of charity, nobody will take you with the issue for that. But if you want to stay faithful to Christ and proclaim Christ, well, now you're going to start running into bumpy water, you know, uh, uh, into, into choppy water. And so again, this is the thing that we were seeing there in Pergamos as well. And what, the, and what this church was doing is it was staying faithful to the name of Christ. And I love this because in one sense, the name of Christ is representative of everything that Christ is, both by way of his person, by way of his teaching, by way of the gospel. So to be faithful to the name of Christ is not to desert, is not to desert anything by way of who Christ is and the impact of the gospel, staying true to the gospel. But I think there's a personal element here to, to this as well. There was a personal allegiance to Jesus Christ. So when, he, so when our Lord says, I know thy works and that thou hast not denied my name, I ask you this question. Is there on our part a personal allegiance to Jesus Christ? Not just the personal allegiance, again, to Christianity in general, Christianity in its cultural manifestation, Christianity maybe in its more specific application here at this local church, but is there in your heart and mind 
of holding on to the person of Jesus Christ so that you are holding to Christ himself. And Christ would be able to say of you, you have not denied my name. My name was precious to you, and therefore your name is precious to me. You see, they, you see my, faith, my faithful uh, martyr, Antipas. And so again, they, they did not deny his name. But neither did they deny his faith. And I, and I think of two passages of Scripture. Uh, again, they did not deny his name. He that confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. They did not deny my faith. Jude speaks of those, again, to, to earn, Jude speaks of earnestly contending for the faith that was once delivered uh, to, to the saints. This idea that the faith must be maintained. There are distinctives. There are truths that cannot be compromised. There are truths that are both doctrinal and ethical as well. And what we're going to see here again next week, I hate to keep forecasting, but next week what we're going to see is that the church was failing in the ethical domain whereby it was giving itself over to kind of the moral uh, uh, standards of the culture. That's devastating to a church. We'll get to that. But the our Lord Jesus Christ is able to say to this little church at Pergamos that you have not denied my name and you have not, and you have kept my faith. This is the standard for all churches throughout history that we as a church do not deny the name of Christ, and that we as a church, again, do not abandon the faith of Christ. How do we do that? As I said before, we do that by way of a personal, living relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion will only get you so far. Outward Christianity will only take you so far. And when it all comes down to it, when the rubber meets the, the road, the individual is going to act closely to that which he cherishes most. And if you cherish again your life or your goods in this present world, when, when, the, when, when, the, when, the, when the trying times come, oh my brothers and sisters, it's going to be difficult, isn't it? But if Jesus Christ is your nearest and dearest affection, if Jesus Christ again is the love above all loves, then you see it's a different situation. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, again, you have not denied my name and neither have you denied my faith. You know, there is, a, there is a need for doctrinal clarity in the church. A lot of times, we, sometimes we make doctrine secondary issue. You know, we make it a secondary matter. It's not. The truth of Christianity must be articulated and defended. It's very, very important that we do that, and Christ commends this church for that. But notice what else we have here. He says this. Again, uh, there in, uh, in verse 13, Thou hast not denied my faith, even in those days where in Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. What our Lord is doing at this point, he is commending this church by saying, look, even in a time when there was great persecution against the church, specifically in the days when Antipas, my faithful martyr. Now it's interesting, there's not much known as to who Antipas was. We don't know much about him by way of church history. Uh, there's a tradition that says that he was, that he was uh, martyred in the, in the most excruciating way. Um, I almost hesitate to say exactly how he, was, he, he, he experienced death. But one of the things I want you to see is this, is that many commentators believe that, that Antipas was probably not a citizen of Pergamos. But since Pergamos had the authority to execute, you know, in their mind, criminals, those who would not submit to the imperial power, Antipas was brought to Pergamos. And in Pergamos, Antipas was slain. As I said before, he was slain in a most horrific fashion. Uh, some think, again, I was listening to one man who was saying that, uh, again, I don't know if he was just speculating or if he was making a case that maybe his research had brought out, 
that, that Antipas may have been an individual who was, uh, who was either teaching or he may have been an individual who had influence. But when the requirement to show fidelity to Caesar came up, Antipas refused that. And after, again, extended trial, and it's interesting how these things work out. If you look at those who have given their lives for Christ, normally you don't have just like a one-sided, hard, harsh approach to make them recant their faith in Christ. Normally it's the classic, and I think I mentioned this last week, the classic good cop, bad cop. You'll have enticements to leave Christ. You'll have threats to leave Christ. You have some who will implore you. You have others who will threaten you. And the idea when it's all said and done is just to move you away from Christ. But our Lord says this, Antipas, my, my faithful martyr, he says. And so here was this man, Antipas, faithful unto death. Well, I want to stop here by way of the explanation of the passage of Scripture because I want to take up next week the, the, uh, the points that Jesus criticizes the church for. We'll get to that. But I do want to bring some points of, some, some questions to you from this text. And the first question I want to ask you is this. In light of a passage of scripture like this, in light of what we hear about this church, have I, have you, considered the cost of following Jesus? Somebody might be saying right now, Pastor, your numbers are way down right now. You make, you, are you sure you want to talk to me about counting the cost for following Christ? If I didn't do that, what kind of a pastor would I be? Amen. And so I ask myself the question, I ask you the question, have we counted the cost of following Christ? Number two, have we considered some of the, some of the subtle ways in which challenges to our faithfulness to Christ might present itself to us? Again, stop and think, as I said before, about that uh, that, that movie, Question 7. And I would suggest that you look it up. And uh, you could probably get it somehow, you know, a streaming service or somehow, some way. Question 7, I think, vi vision video. And it's, 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 it's really a compelling story. It really is. Uh, but again, stop and think of how subtle the, the temptation was to leave off Christ. Here you have not a, not a man in his 80s. Remember faithful Poly Polycarp? He was taken before the emperor. And the emperor, again, they, he, he threatens him. Others kind of, you know, kind of implore him to, 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 to show uh, uh, allegiance to the emperor. And you remember what Polycarp says, 80 and 6 years, 80 and 6 years I've served him, and he has done me no wrong. I will not deny him. And it's one thing for, again, the aged to say that. I think some of us are, we, we, you know, we're at a period of our lives where we see that most of our lives have already been lived. But what's it like for a 14 or 15-year-old uh, to have his whole future in front of him and have that whole future pivot on the way one question is answered? It happens. And we must be aware of these things. Your next advancement, your next raise, your next kind of acceptance into certain circles may all depend on how you identify or not identify with the person of Christ. We have to be aware of the subtlety that our, that our, that, that, that our day presents us with in our, in our purposeful following of Christ. So have we counted the cost? Have we considered these things? And have we considered some of the subtleties? And the other thing I want to ask you is this. Are we comfortable with 
our Lord Jesus Christ as he presents himself to us this way in this passage of scripture? Are we comfortable with the Christ who repeatedly says, be thou faithful unto death? Are we comfortable with the Christ who says repeatedly, because you have stayed faithful, you have overcome? Are we comfortable with that picture of Christ? And if not, I would ask that each of us then examine our, our standing with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we understand what we did when we professed faith in Christ? Are we willing again to follow through on that profession of faith in Christ? Well, my brothers and sisters, these things are challenging, are they not? But I ask and I hope that by way of the grace of God that we will be able to stand fast even as those in this church was able to stand fast. Now next week we're going to consider there were some in this church. It's almost, it's almost, it's almost inconceivable that a church willing to stand so resolutely in following Christ, that there could be an undercurrent of being tempted to acquiesce to the standards of the world. But that was what was happening in this church, and we'll take that up next week. Well, may God give us grace to stand like this church did in a time of persecution or temptation. Heavenly Father, give us grace in this, we pray. Be with us, we ask, Lord God, and help us, we pray to heed your word and warning to repent and to overcome this situa these situations that you have provid providentially brought us to. Give us grace, we pray, Lord God, to confess before a watching world that our Lord Jesus Christ is the only King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.